Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton police issuing an advisory about local swarming incidents. Learn why some residents around Webster's Falls have started a petition. I'm also talking about the Greenbelt scandal, again, Truth and Reconciliation Day, and a big day for Goodwill Amity of Hamilton and Halton. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Hamilton police out with a warning about an influx of swarming incidents at local fairs. Most recently, at the Ancaster Fair this past weekend, where a youth was swarmed by teens, attacked and was robbed, and this has also played out at other fairs in recent weeks. Uh, Winona Peach Festival, Festival of Friends, Bimbrook Fair. This is happening, it seems, time and time again. So what is happening? How are police responding and have any arrests been made? Constable Indy Barrage is with Hamilton Police and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Constable Barrage, good morning. Good morning and thanks for having us and uh, helping us bring more attention to this as uh, we still have a few uh, festivals and fairs uh, coming up in the nearer dates. Yeah, we have Caledonia Fair this coming weekend. We have the Rockton World's Fair on Thanksgiving weekend. Before we get to how Hamilton police are preparing for those fairs, many people I've spoken to are saying, what the heck is going on? What What have you noticed? Uh, i tell you the truth, uh, this is uh, out of the or- ordinary for us as well. Um, in the past, yeah, there's been a few flare-ups here and there, one or two, but uh, this tends to be a trend. Uh, this trend is... Uh, not something we've seen, and uh, we're moving forward and uh, making operational plans to make these uh, safe and secure for uh, attendees or festival goers. Are these incidents related? Are the, are the same people responsible? Um, we don't know, but we do, uh, what we can say is that uh, it tends to be a lot of quite a few teens that are involved in this, um, and essentially they're swarming victims and. Uh, taking them of their property, uh, be it by intimidation or uh, by overwhelming them with intimidation or surrounding them and physically assaulting them and uh, stealing them of their uh, property or attempting to at least. Sounds like these uh, individuals, these uh, aggressors are gathering together either on social media or texting to say, hey, we're going to do this on this date at this place. Uh, is is that almost impossible to catch at this time? Do you have to catch them red-handed? Um, no, we we can work after the fact. Um, it, it does make it difficult because these fairs are full of individuals and uh, people there. Um, given that these in- incidents unfold rapidly and violently, and uh, considering the shock that's experienced by the victims, providing an accurate description uh, of the assailants proves to be almost nearly impossible sometimes for uh, some of these victims. And this, in turn, compounds for challenges faced by uh, detectives that are investigate the, and, and the investigative process itself. Um, so it does uh, bring upon its challenges, but uh, we're going to work, and uh, we're, we provided some tips for the festival goers, and uh, hopefully those will help them uh, from being victimized at some of these festivals. Before we get to some of those tips, I want to remind our audience we're in discussion with Constable Indy Barrage from Hamilton Police as we talk about a, a series of swarming incidents at local fairs, the most recent happening this past Saturday night at the Ancaster Fair. Some witnesses have captured some of these incidents on their phones. Have those people passed on that information to investigators? Yeah, so the Hamilton police responded to numerous of these calls, but or we were being informed of uh, a lot of these incidents occurring at these fairs. So, but the thing is, it's it's a lot it's a lot of property to cover. So, when our officers intend to make it to these locations, sometimes the individuals, victims, and the assailants themselves would have dispersed. Um, over this uh, Ancaster Fair, we had about three incidents reported, and actually 
uh, we feel they're going underreported. Uh, we're encouraging victims to come forward. Just uh, take yesterday, for example, we had another individual come forward um, and uh, put a report in saying that they'd uh, been victimized. Uh, they had seven individuals, youths, uh, surround him in uh, an attempt to steal his sweater. And luckily he was able to get away with his sweater, but uh, he didn't uh, get away without sustaining some bumps and bruises. Um, and we're asking individuals to come forward and uh, report it to police so that we can continue to investigate these things. And that incident was at the Ancaster Fair as well? That one was at the Ancaster Fair as well. It was, over, it was on Saturday, so we had them come forward. Like, we're, we're noticing that uh, this public advisory is getting individuals to call us. In terms of greater police presence, will we see more uniformed and undercover officers at the upcoming fairs, or is the drone unit going to be deployed? So we are looking at uh, different operational measures uh, moving into some of these next fairs. Um, some of the measures we're looking at is possibly upping the security uh, presence, along with uh, the placement of uh, the individuals, the officers, and the security officers at these fairs. We've been in contact uh, with uh, the organizers of the Rockton Fair, which is, I believe, nine days away. Um, and we're possible, we're looking at the possibility of even uh, deploying our mounted unit, which would uh, uh, provide for a higher vantage point. So these are all things that we are looking at. Um, we're going to work with organizers, and uh, we've all also had conversations of uh, possibly looking at the derby, um, because that is something that happens overnight, and a lot of these incidents seem to occur uh, when it does get dark. Uh, so we've also looked at the possibility of maybe having the derby happen a little bit earlier in the, in the daylight, so that... Uh, Festival goers can experience that and not have to worry about uh, being victimized. Constable Barrage, are all the victims teenagers? Uh, and the ones that have been reported, yes. Um, that being said, there could be adult victims. Um, we are encouraging all individuals that uh, have uh, been victimized at these fairs to come forward. But the ones that we have received uh, have tended to be in the teenage range. Uh, on top of the uh, assailants have been described to be teenagers as well. How can fairgoers protect themselves? Um, yeah, so we uh, issued a public advisory just a, uh, a few days ago, just providing some safety tips, and which was uh, avoid displaying value bills. And this could be cell phones, jewelry, wallets, just to minimize uh, becoming a target. Uh, traveling in groups. So if you go with a group of friends or family, try to stay with them. And this would deter potential uh, incidents from occurring because uh, these groups are targeting individuals that are by themselves or uh, opportune victims. Um, and being in a group will assist with you uh, not becoming a victim. And uh, tell you the truth, the other one is uh, stay vigilant. Uh, trust your instincts. Try to stay in open areas, stay in crowds, um, and that'll add for that extra bit of security for yourself. Last one, we've got 30 seconds. Have any arrests been made? Um, not at this time. We do have uh, suspects in mind, but uh, we are still looking at Like we said, it, these, these crowds are so large, and it makes it that much more difficult to be able to uh, confirm the identity of uh, some of these suspects. And some, of these, uh, some of these groups have uh, taken that extra step to change their clothing in between uh, some of these incidents. So they are taking these steps, so it seems almost like they are uh, predetermined attacks in some ways. Not, the victim may not be, but they are going out to cause uh, ruckus, I guess. Sounds like it, Constable Barrage. I appreciate your time. Good luck in catching these culprits. Thanks for having us and uh, bringing more attention to this. That is uh, Indy Barrage, Constable with the Hamilton Police.
You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Some local residents are speaking out about losing free access to Dundas Peak and Webster's Falls, and they've also launched an online petition to try to change that. Catherine Roberts is the petition organizer and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Catherine, good morning. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. You've launched a petition on change.org. What what are you what do you want to see? Well, uh, the Spencer Gorge area, first of all, I live in Greensville, um, in very close proximity to uh, Webster's Falls and the Dundas Peak. And um, this area was created as a public park uh, for local residents back in 1933. And uh, it has for many, many years been the park that was at the heart of our local community. But um, the the uh, conservation authority now operates the park. It was handed over to the conservation authority, I believe in uh, 2000. And uh, they've recently started to um, charge reservation fees uh, in order to enter the park. Um, <clears throat> so now in order for family four to visit uh, Webster's falls and the Dundas peak, which used to be one attraction that you could walk to uh, from one to the other, you now have to spend $41 to attend uh, Webster's Falls and another 41 to attend uh, Dundas Peak. Um, and that fee includes a $10 mandatory reservation fee and an $11 uh, parking fee. And those two fees are mandatory, even if you live in the area and you want to walk to the park, which I do with my dog quite often. So even if you're not taking a vehicle, you're still being charged the per vehicle fee? That's right. And there's no way that you can avoid paying it. The Conservation Authority has an online reservation system, and that reservation system uh, includes a mandatory $10 reservation fee and a mandatory $11 parking fee. So you're obviously calling on the, conversa- on the Conservation Authority to reverse this or lower the fees, or what, what is the genesis of the, the petition that you've put on change.org? Well, uh, there are a couple of issues. Number one... Um, I don't have any issue with the reservation system that the Conservation Authority has put into place because the Conservation Authority and the City of Hamilton have uh, promoted Webster's Falls and the Dundas Peak as part of their uh, City of Waterfalls tourism campaign for years. And that has unfortunately been extremely successful, unfortunately, for the local residents who have to endure the huge influx of um, uh, traffic and cars and vehicles and Instagram tourists who come and they flock to this area, particularly in the fall when the fall colors are at their peak. And so I will say that the reservation system has helped a bit with the traffic congestion in this area. But what I don't understand is why there has to be a $10 fee to make a reservation over and above the entry fee that uh, people need to pay. And uh, so I think that for for everybody to visit, there should be no uh, reservation fee. I don't really understand. I, that just feels like a cash grab. Um, <clears throat> and, and similarly with the, the parking fee, which should be optional if you don't have a car and you don't need to pay that fee. But for the local residents who live here in this area, who've, who've always lived in this area, uh, I feel that we should have our free access to the beautiful park in our own backyard uh, restored to us. Um, many of folks who live up here chose to live up here. We we pay the same municipal taxes as everybody else, but we don't have uh, local municipal water or sewer. We live in a rural area, and we've chosen to do that mostly so that 
we have access to these natural wonders, but now we have to pay to visit the park that's in our own backyard. So, and, and we have to endure the uh, the flood of tourists every year. So I think that uh, the other aspect of the petition is that the local Greensville residents who've always considered this park to be part of our uh, the heart of our local community should have free access to the park restored to them. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Catherine Roberts, the petition organizer of this change.org petition, uh, speaking out about losing free access to Dundas Peak and Webster's Falls. Have you received any response from the Conservation Authority or even City Council? No, I haven't heard from uh, from anybody, but I can tell you I've heard from my neighbors. <laughs> and <laughs> what are they saying? Lots and lots of people who are very uh, enthusiastic about this petition. It's really struck a nerve. Well, I can imagine so. And uh, do you expect to hear some sort of response from the city or the, the HCA? I hope so. I hope so. Our local councillor, Alex Martin, is... Uh, is also on the board of the Conservation Authority. And uh, so I've directed the petition to him as well as to the Conservation Authority. And I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll hear from Alex and, and I'm hopeful that he'll be able to advocate for his constituents and try to find a resolution. Since these fees have been brought in, have you noticed um, a difference in vehicle traffic or even foot traffic in your neighborhood? I think that the reservation system has helped uh, a bit to regulate the flow of vehicle traffic. Uh, it is very heavy in the fall, though. Um, lots of people show up not realizing there's a reservation system and try to get in anyway. But it has it has uh, improved the the traffic congestion uh, somewhat. Yes, I will say that. But I don't think that you can necessarily attribute that to the fees. I think it's the fact that you have to have a reservation to enter the park. Right. Well, Catherine, I wish you uh, good luck with this petition, and uh, we'll certainly uh, get an update from you down the road. Thank you so much for your interest. Catherine Roberts is the petition organizer of this change.org petition, um, really complaining, speaking out about losing free access to Dundas Peak and Webster's Falls, even though not having a vehicle going into the park. Uh, she claims she's, they're still being charged that $11 per vehicle fee in addition to the reservation fee. We'll have to follow up with the Conservation Authority on that. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Ontario's legislature, meantime, resumed yesterday after the summer recess came to an end and the green bell controversy. Lo and behold, I'll create a little bit of fireworks. I was very clear on my message to, on Thursday to the people of Ontario. That, that's what you call leadership, admitting if there was a mistake, moving forward and making sure we go on with our agenda. But that's not going, that's, that is not going to deter us from building 1.5 million homes. The legislature resuming yesterday with a very different look to the Ford cabinet as well, with three cabinet departures, a couple of cabinet shuffles. Here to talk all about it is Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Colin, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning. Doing well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, as expected, a somewhat raucous start to the fall sitting of Queen's Park. What were some of the highlights? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, all of the uh, Queen's Park press gallery was was inside the legislature yesterday, waiting to see what the fireworks were going to look like. I, it, I mean, to a degree... We weren't disappointed, and to a degree, we were. Uh, here's why. So for, first of all, we were all looking to see who would actually be present. And, you know, some of the people, that, some of the main 
uh, players in this scandal weren't there. Steve Clark, the former housing minister, did not come to question period yesterday. Khalid Rashid, who resigned under scandal, was not present as well. The only person who was kind of at the center of all of this was Doug Ford, and he was in the hot seat front and center taking a lot of the Greenbelt questions. Now, the NDP kind of came prepared with a few questions, as did the Ontario Liberals, but the one thing that was noticed, including by a lot of progressive conservative MPPs, was that the NDP seemed to pull back. They started off question period with a number of questions about the Greenbelt and then very quickly decided that they were going to move on to other topics like school bus transportation in Ottawa, as an example. So, you know, even though even the progressive conservatives were kind of scratching their heads going, they were preparing for a lot worse from the NDP, but they didn't quite get you know, a full frontal assault from the opposition, especially given the months of criticism that's been coming from the NDP. Nevertheless, though, the NDP asked the Ford government and Premier Doug Ford, you know, how are Ontarians to trust them? Uh, that, you know, life isn't better in Ontario than it was five years ago. And 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 really saying to the, um, the Ontario progressive conservatives, how are people to believe that the government that went through this you know, what they call corrupt process is to be trusted with returning the lands back to the Greenbelt in a, in a process that will be as transparent as possible. And those were some of the questions that the government was ultimately facing. We also heard from the new housing minister, Paul Calandra, who's apparently working on some new legislation to add to the Greenbelt. Yeah, so this is actually really interesting. So, you know, the process is is in question here, right? The government kind of rushed through this process to open up lands of the Greenbelt. But now putting it back, everyone's kind of going to be watching this government with, with a microscope, right, to make sure that they do exactly as the premier had promised. So the housing minister says they're going to introduce legislation that'll do three things. The, um, the 7,400 acres of land that were removed they will be put back into the green belt. Then the government had actually added in 9,700 or 9,400 acres of land to the green belt as well. Those will also be retained now in the green belt. And then finally, this legislation that will be tabled sometime in the near future will codify the boundaries of the green belt. So in perpetuity, if a future government wants to amend even the edges or just one acre of the green belt, they will have to table legislation in the legislature so that everyone can see that the government is kind of walking in through the front door of Queen's Park with this proposal, as opposed to the backdoor policy that we saw uh, the government uh, bring into effect a, a couple of uh, about a year ago. Uh, you know, there have been some commentators that have said this is essentially the, you know, stopping Doug Ford Act, <laughs> right? Because this is to undo what Doug Ford did, but it's Doug Ford undoing it through legislation. It's kind of a bit ironic. In in our final 45 seconds together, what does that decision do to Premier Ford's plan to build all these homes within the next decade? Yeah, well, listen, the, the 50,000 home proposal, that's dead in the water. Some may have argued that these lands were unserviceable, so it was dead in the water before you know it was even proposed. Go, but, but when it comes to building 1.5 million homes, I mean, we, we have to see the, the government measures its success with, oh sorry the government measures its success with housing starts and those housing starts have been dismal and so ultimately the government is going to have to table more policies to fast track the constructions of homes and that's what we're going to see probably in this session of the legislature we uh, will be waiting with bated breath that is for sure colin always appreciate the time
My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Colin DeMello is Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News with uh, a nice rundown of what happened at Queen's Park yesterday. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, we all know that Premier Doug Ford pulled the plug again on his controversial Greenbelt housing plan last week. I made a promise to you that I wouldn't touch the Greenbelt. I broke that promise. And for that... I'm very, very sorry. The thing is, was it even going to work? There are some people, including our next guest, who say it would have never provided affordable housing anyway. Brian Doucette is the Canada Research Chair in Urban Change and Social Inclusion, Associate Professor in the School of Planning at the University of Waterloo. Dr. Doucette joins us now. Dr. Doucette, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm I'm kind of on the same page with you. I I never thought for a second that Doug Ford's Greenbelt housing plan, which turned out to be a big gaffe, was going to ever provide affordable housing. You being in this field, what did you sense? Yeah, you're you're exactly right. Um, any housing or most of the housing that would get built on this greenfield land would not be affordable to households, families, communities that need it. I mean, you only need to go out to the edges of, of Hamilton and look at the big, massive houses that are being built. I mean, this is the kind of thing that, that would get built on Greenbelt land. So, no, and the, the government's own affordable housing um, task force also said as such, and most housing researchers would say as such, you know, the type of housing that gets built out on the fringes of, of cities is not going to be affordable, particularly to low middle, moderate income households. Is there, because we've had this supply and demands kind of debate over the over the last number of years in which the supply of homes, the number of homes available, well, there is a short supply and that has boosted the price of these homes. Would building on the green belt have at least helped alleviate that to a certain degree? I mean, you'd get more homes built. So the numbers would say you're increasing your supply. But again, we need to move beyond the the very simple question of how much housing do we need and we need to think much more carefully and much more in a much more detailed way about what kind of housing for whom and where and when you start asking those questions you realize that not only is the housing that's built on the edges uh, sort of in greenbelt and former farmland not only is it not affordable but it's also in the wrong place it costs municipalities a lot more to service those new houses on the edges of, of the built-up area and in sort of in, in former farmland than it does to service the same number of houses in the existing built-up areas. So it, there's other costs in, involved, and somebody's got to pay for that. There's also a cost to the people who move into those homes, because, again, we're talking the outskirts of Hamilton, for instance, in this case. It is not close to transit. You know, we always talk about location, location, location. They, they would have never been affordable housing because that connection to transit services, in which many people who need affordable housing probably need transit as well, it was really two strikes and they're already out. Well, that, that's exactly right. So when you factor in how much it costs to live somewhere, there's the sticker price of the house and then how much that translates to in, in a monthly cost. But then there's all sorts of other costs. So the housing, you know, the sticker price of a of a suburban house might be cheaper than the same house in the inner city, right, in, in lower Hamilton. But then you factor, if you're living out there, you probably need two cars. 
costs more to run those cars because you've got to go further distances. If you're living in uh, an older, denser area, you might be able to just have one car or your monthly transit, uh, transit costs might be far cheaper than operating uh, two vehicles or three vehicles, you know, if you've got older teenagers at home. And so all those other costs have to be factored in when we're thinking about where this housing should go and how much it's ultimate, ultimately going to cost the people living in it. You can read uh, Dr. Brian Doucette's article on theconversation.com. The headline, Doug Ford reverses Greenbelt plans. Construction would never have provided affordable housing. So here's the million-dollar question. How do we solve this housing crisis? What should communities like Hamilton be doing? Well, so it's a million-dollar question, but we actually know many of the solutions. And, and, you know, if we're talking about what the provincial government should do, because this is provincial government policy, one of the first things they should do is reintroduce stronger rent control rules. That would keep existing housing more affordable, and we'd avoid seeing these massive jumps in rent that you hear about all the time. When it comes to building new houses, there's a huge opportunity to build the kind of housing that the market's not going to build. And that is all the land that the provincial government owns through Metrolinx along Hamilton's LRT corridor. They've acquired huge amounts of land in order to build the line. And most of that, or a lot of that, is not going to be needed once the line is up and running. So the question is, what do you do with that land? If you simply sell it to the highest bidder, right, put it out in the open market, we're going to get a lot of condos, right, a lot of the typical development that we see in cities. But if we actually keep that land in public ownership and work with a variety of nonprofits, you know, think beyond the market, we could actually have large sections, large areas being built where the housing is directly linked to the kind of demand that we have. We could see much more affordable rental. We could see more social housing. We we could see different kinds of affordable home ownership. But if that land is simply sold to whoever wants to pay the most money, which is the current provincial government's plan with that land, it's not going to make much of a difference in terms of affordability. If we get units built, again, the numbers will look good, Mm -hmm. but will it be affordable to Hamiltonians? Probably not. That is a great point, Dr. Doucette. We'll leave it there. I really thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. That is Dr. Brian Doucette, Canada Research Chair in Urban Change and Social Inclusion and Associate Professor in the School of Planning at the University of Waterloo. Enter online to win a pretty cool prize pack to go to the AGH Festival. So 900 CHML and the Art Gallery of Hamilton teaming up and want to send you to the HGH or AGH Festival from October the 12th to the 21st, which is 10 days of arts and culture. You can enter online at 900CHML.com for a chance to win one of two prize packages, the AGH Festival Package or the AGH Festival Concert Package. Enter online only at 900CHML.com. Coming up, it is the Roundtable with Paul and Shona. Do we care about Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey smooching or just hanging out? That's next on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. National Day for Truth and Reconciliation is coming up, and all week we're sharing stories from Indigenous peoples and tackling the issues that they face, the opportunities that are in front of Indigenous peoples, and, well, some of the challenges that they have overcome. It's a great story to tell. Chrissy Doolittle is an Indigenous Students Services Director at McMaster University and joins us now on GMH. Chrissy, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? I'm really good. How is McMaster University commemorating Truth and Reconciliation Day? What do you have planned? Uh, So McMaster University, we actually have a week-long of events that have already started 
So starting with yesterday, there was a survivor's flag raised above University Hall on campus. Um, University Hall, as well as our Indigenous Circle, which is an outdoor learning and gathering space, will be lit in orange every evening this week, leading up to and including September 30th. We also have a wide variety of events happening across campus um, that our central communications team has been working really hard to share through our daily news site and releasing more information and resources every day. We are launching with our Indigenous Studies Department, a university-wide book club that we'll be launching this week. And that's really meant to start fostering those conversations, having that open dialogue and opportunity for knowledge and growth beyond just September 30th. So this year we'll be uh, focusing on truth-telling seven conversations about Indigenous life in Canada, which is by advocate, activist, and award-winning novelist Michelle Good. So all of our participants at McMaster will have a chance to join in person or virtual discussions with the other participants and have an opportunity to connect with Michelle Good herself as well. That, that is wonderful because you're turning, you're turning a one-day event into a year-long uh, commemoration of, of what this day really represents. Yes, for sure. We definitely want to promote that this is this goes beyond just one day. We want to use the day to highlight and to have, um, you know, particularly settlers and non-Indigenous people to take the time to reflect and educate and learn about what the impact of residential schools were and what their lasting impact is today on our families and our communities. So we want to carry those conversations forward uh, beyond September 30th. I was on the uh, website earlier this morning, indigservices.mcmaster.ca, which outlines a number of events that are coming up, including one this Friday with an elder-in-residence knowledge keeper. What's planned for Friday? Yes, so we have an Indigenous Student Services year-round. We have an elders-in-residence program where students can connect one-on-one with our elders um, for traditional teachings, um, they come and they cook with the students and just meet with the students one-on-one -on -one and provide um, that cultural and knowledge support to the students directly. So we will be having one of our elders to our closed space on Friday. That event particularly will be um, limited to our Indigenous students, staff, faculty, uh, where we'll also be having a bit of a, a feast at lunch. We'll be having corn soup and ham and scone and strawberry juice and just having a a space that's kind of quieter and a safe space just for us to gather and connect with all of the different events and the heaviness going on this week. Chrissy Doolittle is the Director of Indigenous Student Services at McMaster University. You can find out more information online at indigservices.mcmaster.ca. What is the contingent of Indigenous students at MAC like? Is it Can, can you describe it as large? It's fairly small uh, in the overall McMaster community. We have uh, on average, about 400 uh, Indigenous students on campus. Uh, it is something that we're working towards increasing the access for. In Indigenous Student Services, we've launched a new student transition program, which is called Gaunda Diwanias. And that means in the Cuba language, they are strengthening, strengthening their knowledge. So that's been a really great initiative where it gives our Indigenous students a chance to connect with the school ahead of uh, starting their classes and they get to learn about cultural activities, Indigenous ways of knowing, they get to meet our elders and get connected with all of the services on campus. And that support for those students continues throughout the fall term where they are doing activities and academic skill building throughout the term. Tomorrow, um, 
our transition coordinator will be leading a an orange shirt beading activity with the students in the transition program. There's no doubt that Indigenous students at MAC will be engaged with what is going on this week and certainly this weekend. What about the non-Indigenous population at MAC? Is, do, are you seeing some engagement there? Yes, I think we're starting to see more and more um, different groups on campus wanting to get involved, asking how they can help. So we are launching a new committee that will be focused on planning the events throughout the year. For this year, we have a, a wide variety of events that are open to everyone. Our Indigenous Studies Department is hosting a film screening on campus that is free for all McMaster students, staff and faculty of Bones of Crows. And our Indigenous Health Learning Lodge will also be hosting film screenings for the same movie out in the community. And that is open to everyone. So they will be hosting theirs on Friday morning, beginning at 9 a.m. at Landmark Cinemas in Jackson Square, as well as screenings in St. Catharines and Waterloo. That is awesome stuff. Chrissy, thanks for sharing all this information and uh, good luck the rest of this week and, of course, beyond. Thank you. Chrissy Doolittle is the Director of Indigenous Student Services at McMaster University. Online, indigservices.mcmaster.ca. Indig is I-N-D-I-G, services.mcmaster.ca. They have some wonderful activities and events planned throughout the week, and as you heard, throughout the year as well, which is extremely important. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It is a big day for Goodwill Amity of Hamilton and Halton celebrating well a couple of major milestones as we welcome you back to good morning hamilton on 900 chbl kelly duffin is the ceo of goodwill amity of hamilton and halton and joins us on gmh kelly good morning how are you good morning very well how are you i'm good there's uh, it's very rare that an entity will celebrate one major milestone but you you guys have two what's going on very true. So we're actually 88 years old tomorrow. Oh, wow. But um, what we're celebrating today is um, 50 years since we purchased our building in downtown Hamilton. We're right at King William and Ferguson. Uh, so we've operated out of that building for 50 of our 88 years. And it's also in 1973 that we joined Goodwill. We were founded as Amity in Hamilton. So it was 50 years ago that we became Goodwill Amity. Wow. So what does this celebration look like? Uh, so in honor of the occasion and kind of that that history, um, a team of staff has created what we're calling a, a kind of a history wall that has a timeline and some of our historic photos and really milestones over those 50 years. Um, so we'll be talking to all of our guests, which are who are community leaders and um, and tenants in our building and community partners. Um, a, a little bit about our history, celebrating that history, giving them the chance to see those milestones in, in pictures and text. And then we'll also be doing a ribbon cutting. So what comes to mind when you think of the most memorable moments over the past 50 years? What are some of the highlights? Yeah, and it's amazing, actually, uh, things that you would not think of. Right now, our primary focus in, in 2023 is helping people find work. That's really our mission, changing lives and strengthening communities through the power of work. Um, and we do that partly through the operation of our very well-known thrift stores. But when you look back at our history, there's there's a more diverse range of things we've done. People may not know that we once had garden plots on Hamilton Mountain, for instance, and provided that would provide residents in need with fresh fruit, fruit and vegetables. 
um, or that, I mean, this was more than 50 years ago, but that we collected scrap metal for the war effort during World War II. Who, <laughs> who knew? Um, and one thing we are very proud of is that Amity Handy Transit was actually the forerunner of today's darts. Um, and other things, some pictures that we have, we have a photo of the, of the of a train actually running down Ferguson right beside our building at King William, which, and obviously those tracks are long gone. Um, and also a photo of a donation box for clothing and household goods that actually was a talking donation box uh, <laughs> probably 30 years ago. <clears throat> so we were ahead of our time. Wow, absolutely. Goodwill Amity of Hamilton Halton is celebrating uh, the 50-year anniversaries of two major milestones, including one moving into the uh, 225 King William Street building in downtown Hamilton. And you mentioned one of the greatest needs in the community is employment services. What is the need like? Paint us a picture of what kind of demand is out there. Yeah, for sure. So, um, and and you mentioned our actual address. One of the things we're very proud of, and one reason we do want to celebrate buying the building 50 years ago, is we are, of course, in Beasley, um, one of the lowest income neighborhoods, not only in Hamilton, but in all of Canada. Um, and employment is really the great enabler in terms of lifting people out of poverty, uh, both individuals and families. So what we do is provide free employment services, both for employers looking for a workforce, um, but also for individuals um, who, who may be looking for work. And in Hamilton, I mean, what we see is it could be people with disabilities. It could be newcomers looking for that first Canadian experience, youth looking for their new first job. Uh, it could be people who didn't have the opportunity to finish their education or maybe don't have a lot of work experience. And it won't surprise you to know that increasingly we're seeing people with mental health and, um, and addictions issues. And with our supports and wraparound community partnership supports, we help them transition into employment, um, have that sense of purpose and actually an income. Employment and income are the top two social determinants of health. Um, so it really can lift them into a healthier life, a more independent life. And um, that's true for their family as well. I mean, it can break generational cycles of poverty. With where we are in terms of the cost of living, housing instability, um, you know, talk of a recession coming. Uh, some employers might be thinking, you know, now's not the time to add to our workforce. Are you seeing the need greater than ever? Um, yes, and I think one thing employers could keep in mind is that because of our government funding for employment services, we often have what's called incentive dollars. So that would be, you know, maybe a few thousand dollars that we could transition um, over to the employer to support the hiring, onboarding and training process of new staff and particularly small to medium enterprises uh, who I'm sure will be the most affected by the, the kind of the economic forces you described, um, find that extremely beneficial. So if they are in need of staff, working with an employment service provider like Goodwill can actually give them a few more resources to get the staff in place that they need. Kelly, if someone does want to make a donation, how can they go about doing so? Uh, well, they can reach out to us anytime. Our website is goodwillonline.ca, um, and there are links to make a donation or just to find out more. Goodwillonline.ca, the resource to go to to get some information on all the good that Goodwill Amity of Hamilton Halton is doing and to make a donation to the cause as well. Kelly, really appreciate the time and a happy anniversary. 
Thank you so much. Kelly Duffin is the CEO of Goodwill Amity of Hamilton and Halton. Doing some good in the community, that is for sure. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.